first of this morning's two readings is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, O Israel, the decrees and the laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our fathers that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face, out of the fire on the mountain. At that time I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord, because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up to the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything, in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Our second reading is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. This is God's word. Thanks, Lewis. Now, we're mainly on, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, so uh, really useful to turn back to that page, page 184. Uh, let me pray briefly one more time before we begin. Our Father, these words seem distant from us in a whole number of ways, and yet we know you're a God who is alive and who speaks, so please, would you once again reveal yourself to us through your word this morning we are, so we understand you, so we know you, so that we might love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, uh, if you're joining us today, and of course some are just joining us for today, we're looking at the Ten Commandments over the summer, those ten instructions in the Old Testament. They're on the wall behind me. Lots of churches would do that, because in one sense, they're a fundamental uh, aspect of uh, Old Testament law. God said to his people, I've rescued you, and now here's how you live. And that's always the way it is in the Bible. God rescues, he saves people and then says, no, you should live this way. It's never obeying the rules that means that God will accept you or save you. So we come to the second commandment, and it is this one. You shall not make an idol and bow down and worship it. And I know what you're thinking. You're all thinking, oh, thank goodness for that. Because all those idols I've made over the years, all the things I've smelted from iron and carved from wood, and they sit in the lounge and on the dining room table, I've never been entirely sure what to do with them. And so at last, here is the instruction I need. It's just what I required this Sunday morning. And I'm glad you feel that way. Or maybe not. 
Maybe not, because for 21st century years, there are some obvious issues in a little passage or a commandment such as this. One, how is this relevant? Look, I'm not a perfect person, but carving little things out of wood and bowing down to them, that isn't one of my things. Uh, I have more obvious mistakes in my life than that, perhaps. And then I guess the other issue people would have with a passage such as this is, okay, so God is jealous and punishes. Well, I don't like that. It sounds petty. So Richard Dawkins makes much of the God who flies into a monumental rage when his people flirt with another God, his quote. Yeah, well, you need to address both of those things. But let me just make one preliminary comment before we really uh, jump into this. Christians know, or the Christian claim is that there is one God supremely revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ whose death upon the cross is the only way you can be restored to relationship with God and saved for an eternity with him. One God, one way to know him through Jesus Christ. Now that immediately makes people feel nervous. London, like many, is a multicultural city in the 21st century. And so people will comment, well, I don't like that. If we're going to work, operate as a multicultural city... You just, you mustn't say things like that. That is intolerant. That is arrogant. You should shut up. Well, uh, let me just make the obvious point before we begin that, that actually, no matter what you believe, everyone's view is intolerant at some point. So you could be the sort of person who thinks, ah, oh, well, there's probably some truth in most religions, in Islam and Buddhism and Christianity, and they overlap, there's probably some truth in them all, but you mustn't take them any of them too seriously, please, because that's a mistake to take any of them too seriously and to say there's one way. As soon as you've done that, you're saying, I'm right and people of all faiths are wrong. Essentially, you're saying, I can see something more. Buddha was wrong. Jesus was wrong, Muhammad was wrong. So you're claiming to know better than all of them. Is that a humble statement? I'm not sure it is. I think that's a fairly proud statement being made at that moment in time. You see, as soon as you say someone is wrong and I think I know better, it's the same issue. Or you could be the atheist, of course, who just says I'm right and everyone's wrong, which is, again, not the most humble of statements to make. All peoples of faith, they're all wrong. And at that point, you are the smallest minority of a worldview, and you're saying that billions across the planet are wrong. Is that humble? It doesn't sound humble to me. So it's an obvious point, but can we just be honest with one another and agree before we move any further? Yeah, Christians say there's one God and one way to know him through Jesus Christ. That is no more proud, arrogant than any other view, than your view. Could we just be honest on that? Be realistic. Okay, let's have a look at this second commandment then. Uh, the Ten Commandments then, uh, if you're working your way through them, the first four, of course, most obviously, maybe the fifth as well, but most obviously concerned with how you worship the Lord. So the first commandment, no other gods before me, that's who you worship. The second, no idols, that's the manner of worship. The third is the language of worship, don't misuse the name. The fourth, having time of rest, that's the time of worship. They're all concerned with how we relate to the Lord. But the second then, you shall not make an idol for yourself of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath 
or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Now, I haven't done this particularly well, but let's cut it four ways, okay? We're going to say four things. There's a problem with idols. There's a temptation of idols. We'll look at the damage of idols before we look at the real image of God, okay? We'll punch through these four. First, then, there's a problem with idols. Essentially, it's this. They stop us knowing God. That's the problem, really. They stop us knowing God. So don't make or worship an idol, says the Lord. And it's something that the Israelites took seriously. Archaeologists will dig and discover all sorts of statues and idols of all sorts of gods, but none of the Lord. You can't go to the British Museum, who have stolen the best of everything all over the world, but you can't find a statue or an idol of the Lord, Yahweh, because broadly this was taken fairly seriously. Now that was unusual, because you didn't, all ancient cultures largely had representations of gods, and they liked to have them as animals. So you know these things. So you know, just a you know a little bit of uh, Egyptian, uh, you know Horus, Osiris, uh, Bastat, and all those things. They loved their humans who were animals uh, in in Egypt. Or of course, if you go a little further to the east into India, you know Ganesh and uh, all his friends uh, in Hinduism and Sikhism to a certain extent. The um, uh, then of course you drift because if you drift into the uh, Western world, well that's from Ephesus. So Roman times, there's Diana. Obviously, she's a goddess of fertility. So what do you do? You have her with loads of breasts as a fertile. I mean, it's always been animal-like. And all cultures have created statues, even those we view as perhaps more enlightened. So it's very different in the Old Testament here. By contrast, the Lord says, no idols, no images of him. That's not a prohibition on making art or beautiful things. Lots of beautiful things in the Old Testament. When you come to the temple in Jerusalem and God says, here's how you make my temple, there is a throne right at the center and it's beautiful, beautifully carved box, uh, layered with gold, these two wonderfully crafted angels, cherubs, on top of the box, again, covered with gold, but the seat itself is empty. Because you don't make a picture The only thing that's there, or more accurately underneath the seat, are the Ten Commandments. Because God is very clear with his people. He reveals himself not in a picture, but in his speech. In his words. So, I mean, you could turn back just one page to chapter 4, and he's told them this. told them this a number of times, but even just back one page in chapter 4 and verse 12. The Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. There already goes. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow. He wrote them down. There was no visual picture. There was no shape. There was no idol. There was no form. Because God reveals himself in words, in his speech. And if you don't listen to his words, but make a picture of him, you'll go wrong. You won't know him. You won't relate to him. If you want to know what the Lord is like, you turn back to his words. That's how he's chosen to reveal himself. Now imagine this. Imagine for some strange reason in the Doring household, uh, Mark and Billy decide uh, uh, Abigail 
24-7 childcare for some reason, for a little uh, moment in time, whatever it may be. Uh, and so, so off she goes. But instead of seeing her uh, every morning and every night and day, through the day, they decide on the wall, let's have this. Um, and we'll whack this on the wall. Some parents do that anyway, but that's, we leave that aside, that sort of size. But, uh, uh, you know, sort of 10 by 10 sort of, but they have this wallop on the wall. And uh, as the days turn into weeks, turn into months, um, you slightly forget, actually, what their daughter is like. And they look up and their memory becomes a little rose-tinted and she was always an angel, yes. Yeah, never did anything wrong, no. No, never a thing. And people come and visit. And they say, who's this? They say, it's our daughter. And they say, oh, she must be an actress. Okay. Or other speculations, she, well, I don't know. She, she's clearly a child prodigy. Look at her. Or she's clearly an evil mastermind determined to take over the house. <laughs> Whatever it may be. But of course, if you never speak to her, you don't listen to her. You know very little. And over time, your image, your idol, you'll just fill with your own ideas of who she is. And so you've got to listen if you want to know Abigail. And she'll tell you whatever it is. My favorite food is yogurt. My favorite program is pepper pig. And my favorite color is pink. And you'll learn things if you listen to her speak. If you don't, you won't. And of course, if you never listen to how the Lord has revealed himself, if you never listen to his words, you'll have a caricature, you'll have a distorted view, you'll have an idol. You won't know him. Of course, okay, super, but no one does that with their children. No one puts them into 24-7 and just relates to a picture on the wall. Of course, they don't know. And um, I take it not many here in this room are in the habit of literally fashioning a, a wooden or metal idol and saying, there is God. Certainly my metal work at school, there is something for the bin, was all it was ever used for. No, not many of us are doing that, no, but we do make an image of God in our heads. So later on in Deuteronomy, in chapter 13, the Lord warns his people. If a prophet or one, let me read you just chapter 13, one or two, you can turn it if you want. But chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you, announces to you a miraculous sign and wonder, and he says, let us follow other gods. Let us follow God like this, gods you have not known. And let us worship them. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. So there God warns his people. Now, no one has got the woodwork kit out. But here someone has said, I think God's a bit like this. I think we should follow God like this. And they've just had daydreams and made it up. And that's a bit more common in the 21st century. I read uh, an interview a little while ago with uh, Oprah Winfrey. I don't know why. But anyway, uh, Oprah Winfrey, uh, you may love her. Uh, many, many do. Uh, she describes herself as one who believes in God, as a deeply spiritual person. But she said in this interview, In my 20s, I went along to church and the preacher was talking about the second commandment, about how God is a jealous God. And I remember I had a spiritual aha. I don't know what that is. 
But there I was in my late 20s and I suddenly thought, how can it be that a God who is all-loving and all-powerful be jealous? I can't believe in that sort of God. Now, I, I just think she's honest enough to express in print what many people think. There's probably a God, probably. Let's hedge my bets, if nothing else. But I don't want that God as he reveals himself in the Bible. I like to think of him... Well, actually, I'm going to think of him like this. And off they go. And they've made a mental idol. Now, that is quite common. That's the problem. The problem with idols, they distort the truth. You cannot know God through an idol. Let's pick up some pace. What's the temptation then? Why? In other words, why? Why would people do such a thing? Well, we started to allude to that. Why does Oprah sit down and daydream, I want God to be like this? Because a God like that is not challenging to you. Not upsetting. Does what you want. The classic story of idolatry in the Old Testament is when Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments from God. The people down below say, he's taking a long time. What's happened to Moses? Let's make a God. Yeah, let's make a God. So they pull all their gold, all their earrings, etc. And they make a golden calf. A cow. Because a cow is a strong animal. And if you want a God who is going to help you win battles, a cow is a good symbol. But if you read what happens in Deuteronomy 32, they make this strong God. And then they get drunk. And then their sexual behavior is erratic. We'll put it sort of euphemistically. And that's the God they want. They want a God who will help them win battles, but will let them be sexually permissive. That's the God they create. I guess that's the temptation with idols. You create a God. Well, that lets you do what you want. So what's the temptation of idols? Well, the God will let you do what you want. And also when people get, I don't know how best to phrase it, weary of God, or when there's something they don't like, they'll create another one. So actually, this is, not a, this is not a foolproof test, but often in a church or an institution, a, church, a denomination, if they've sidelined how God has revealed himself, if they don't like things that are in the scriptures, or they're a bit wearied by them, it'll be a church full of idols and icons, because you've got to turn to something if you want to worship. So the temptation is, I want God, but one who I can do what I want with. That's why people will go for them. It's the problem, the temptation. What about the damage that gets done? Well, there's a twofold damage uh, so expressed here. The first is obvious. It arouses God's jealousy. Verse 9. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God... I'm a jealous God. Six times in the Old Testament, God describes himself as a jealous God. I don't know what you make of that, but I guess you need to acknowledge there's good jealousy and bad jealousy. Bad jealousy is self-centered. I'm missing something. I don't like it. They've got it. I'm angry. Bad jealousy. It's all about me. Good jealousy is when you fight for someone else. You're concerned for the good of someone else. A few years ago, my sister, 
I have one sister. My sister's husband walked out on her and her two children and sat up home with another man. I was annoyed. No, I was angry. And I think that was appropriate. He'd walked out on his family. Now, I could express that badly. I could go and lamp him. That doesn't, no one any good. That's not a particularly impressive way. Or I can say, I'm angry. There has been wrong here. I'm going to do everything I can to pursue a just settlement for my sister to make sure she's cared for. And I will pursue that because she has been wronged and so have the children. See, it's a good jealousy. Entirely appropriate, it seems to me, at that point. And anger is not necessarily a bad thing. To have a jealous anger roused. Well, at times, of course, that's appropriate. If nothing makes you angry, you care about nothing. The Bible regularly commends or praises the Lord for he is slow to anger. To be slow to anger is commendable. To never be angry, well, that's morally deficient. If you're not angry about children being raped in Eritrea as part of war, you're morally deficient, I'm afraid. That's wrong. If you think about it, you may not have time to think about it, but if you do, if you see it, you observe it, it doesn't make you angry, there is something wrong with you, I would suggest. Never anger. Well, that's something wrong. Slow to anger. That is what is commended. And the Lord God says to his people, I am jealous for your love. And that is for your good. Because I am good. And to reject him, well, it's madness and actually it's, well, it's wickedness. Let me try and put it in these terms. Uh, imagine a man, a man, one day it's a woman's birthday and her husband comes along and says, happy birthday, my darling, I love you very much. And uh, my birthday present to you this year is £200,000 worth of plastic surgery. And I've, and I've, um, I've written up a few thoughts and I've got a few designs here. So you can have a new face and new breasts and I've reshaped the rest of you down below. We can, but actually, a whole new you. Happy birthday, my darling. I love you very much. How does she hear that? You don't love me. You want to reshape me. That's not love. That's manipulation. That's control. There's nothing loving about that. I love the Lord. I love, I think there's a God and I want to worship him. I'm just going to retool him, refashion him. You don't love the Lord. If you do that, that's not love. That's manipulation. And, and to do that to the one who is your creator, that's, that's wrong. It's really wrong. It's not loving. People do that who aren't Christians. I like to think of God a bit like that. People who are Christians. I, I, I like the Lord. I'm just not certain about that character trait. I read about that and I just feel a bit uncomfortable about that attribute of God. So I'll just perform a little plastic surgery. The Lord will be really grateful that I've done that to him. He'll really appreciate my surgery upon his character. No, he won't. Worship him as he is, is what he's saying here. So look, the, the idols, they'll arouse God's jealousy. And of course, following an idol will lead to our destruction. I'm a jealous God punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations. Following an idol, you don't know the living God. You're cut off from him. 
And that's a pattern that proceeds into eternity. It's our eternal death to reject him. You could easily read the Ten Commandments and think, oh, they're so negative. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. But part of that is that's what we say often to protect. You see, the, the, the obvious point of the Ten Commandments is the natural condition of the human heart is always just to veer away from worshiping the true God. And we need, we need sort of a little rebuke every Don't do that. Come back. Come back. These are not nasty rules. They are rules which guarantee our freedom. They protect us because if we follow them, we are following the Lord. Well, let me put it this way. This week, my father was diagnosed with cancer. And uh, he's been rushed into hospital. And uh, hopefully they'll proceed quite quickly. Imagine this. Imagine there was a miracle cure. People work on for decades. But there was a miracle cure. There was one drug, excuse me, one drug that healed cancer. And along comes the doctor to see me and says, we've got this drug which heals cancer. But actually, before we give it to your dad, we thought we might play with it a little bit. We might try adding a few things to see if they work. We might try subtracting a few things, see what difference that makes. We, we just want to see if we can moderate it, improve it in some way. Is that all right? You don't muck about with that thing. You give it to my dad as it is. That drug can save him. You give him that drug. Don't mess around. You do not add. You do not subtract. You leave it alone. Because that's the thing that will save him. And that's what these commandments are doing. They're saying to God's people, here is the Lord. Don't try and add stuff. Don't take away stuff. Don't change him and how you relate to him. Because he is the one who can save you. And if you muck about, if you create an idol, you've ruined your relationship with the God. You cannot know him. Leave it alone. Worship him as he is. Truly. See, just like in the cancer drug thing, the Lord is saying... Look, I don't know where you're coming from, but he is saying, I'm not playing intellectual games here. This is not a pub debate, you know, which is the right way to go to God, and how, you know, you got your worldview, and I've got mine, and that's quite interesting. He's not playing intellectual games. It's not a pub debate. He's saying, you relate to the Lord rightly, and that is how you will live forever in eternity. You reject him, you don't. You're rejected for eternity. This is not a game. This is eternity. Worship the Lord and him alone. The impact is cross-generational, we're told here, verse 9 to the third and fourth generation. I don't suppose we're surprised by that. Just like, I guess, the man who is financially unwise, that'll have implications for his children and their children. Perhaps the man who is an alcoholic, that'll have a knock-on effect for his children and their children. And just so, if you reject the living God, that may well have a knock-on effect. But that's not the point. The point is that there's a contrast. There's punishment for three or four generations. There's love to thousands, verse 10. Because here's the Lord who is slow to anger when people reject him. And there's generous kindness to thousands of generations. He is very loving and very merciful. That's supremely seen in Jesus Christ. Let's look at that as we finish. Problem with idols, they'll turn us away from the true God. The temptation, we think we can make a God who's in our own image. The damage... 
They arouse God's jealousy. They cut us off from him. Lastly, then, the real image of God. It may well be worth turning back to Hebrews chapter 1, their lovely little section that Lewis read for us earlier. Uh, page uh, 11, no, excuse me, 2000, and no, 1201. Hasn't got a number on the top, that's kind of annoying. It's 1201, if you've done your flicking. Here is the perfect image of God. In the Old Testament, God revealed himself in words. You get to the New Testament, we're told, here is God revealing himself in the living words, the perfect revelation of God in Jesus Christ. God himself comes down, and if you want to know what God is like, you see it most clearly in Jesus Christ. You'll never understand what God is like more clearly than in him. So we're told, uh, let's just pick it up, uh, well, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets of many times and in various ways. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, who he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That is Jesus Christ, the perfect image of God, who came not just to reveal what God is like, but to make purification for sins. To say, okay, every human without exception has turned their back, has created an idol of me, has worshipped other gods, but here is this perfect one, Jesus Christ, and on the cross there's a swap or an exchange. So Jesus takes punishment that you and I deserve and we receive blessing that only he deserves if we trust in him. That's why Jesus came. Now, people are generally positive about Jesus. You go to most people in the streets and say, Jesus, good bloke or bad bloke? Good bloke, they would say. People are generally sympathetic. He is known as one who is full of love and compassion and kindness. And people will say, if there's a God, I like to think of him as kind and compassionate. Can I just ask a question of you? If you have a view of a God like that, if you find yourself thinking, I don't like a God who is jealous and judges. I do like a God who is loving and kind and compassionate. Where have you got a view that God is like that? compassionate, kind. Where have you got that view of God from? It's not from ancient Greece, where all their gods are constantly at war, they're narcissistic, sycophantic, you know, they're, they're constantly coming down to earth and sleeping. It's not from ancient Greece. It's not from ancient Egypt. It's not from the pagan gods of the Old Testament. There's no forgiveness there. It's not from Eastern religions don't need to be forgiven in most of them. There's no forgiveness, no loving, no compassion. If you have a view of God, I like to think of God as loving and forgiving and compassionate. The only place historically that view of God comes from is from Jesus Christ. So that little seed of what God is like, that is from the Bible comes from here. And the God who is loving and kind and compassionate is also the one who is jealous and gets angry 
with people when they walk away from him. Because it's for their destruction. And he is jealous, not of them, but for them, to bring them back to him for their good. Do you see, God has revealed himself, and you know that if you have a kind, some kind of view of God as kind, compassionate. But you can't pick and choose. You can't perform plastic surgery upon God. Jesus Christ is who he is. So the only way you can keep this second commandment, you shall not make an idol and bow down and worship it, is to say, I trust in Jesus Christ. He is the image of God. I don't deserve anything from the living God, but I trust in Jesus. I trust that he died for me. I trust that he'll take me to be with him in heaven. That's how you keep this second commandment. It's the only way. And this is the God that we want. The, uh, uh, I don't know if you read much about um, uh, the country of Romania. Romania under communism was a very miserable place to be. And many stories come out from that time. But a particularly miserable place to be. One church leader was a man named uh, John Stanescu. John Stanescu was a church minister uh, in prison for his faith. But he didn't stop him preaching. There he was in prison, just preach, 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 preach. John Stanescu to all the others around him. One day the, uh, the, uh, uh, the prison commandant, a man called Colonel Alban in Romania, was furious. So went personally to see him. And, you will shut up your preaching. He said, I will not. And I need to tell you about Jesus Christ. And the colonel was so furious. He said, got two guards and said, strip him and beat him now. I want this man beaten in front of me. And so they stripped him and they started to beat him. Just at that point, the colonel was pulled back to his office. There's someone who needs to see you. Okay, uh, pause and I'll go and sort this out. The colonel went to his office. He'd been denounced as a traitor. You know, it's that period of communism where everyone's stabbing everyone else in the back. He'd been denounced. So one hour later, he finds himself in a cell with John Stanescu and ten other prisoners. And the ten others go for him and try and lynch him. And John Stanescu wrapped himself around that colonel and was beaten and beaten. The others tried to pull him off and he held on until the rest of the prison guards got inside. And by all accounts, the colonel said to him, how do you do that? Why do you do that? He said, well, I believe in Jesus Christ. And one day he will judge you. He will judge you for what you've done and how you've lived your life. But he can forgive you. Because I believe in a God who is willing to not just judge, but willing to come down to this earth to take punishment for people who have rejected him. And Colonel, can I say to you, when you get out of this prison, beware a God that doesn't, excuse me, beware a religion that doesn't have a cross. And beware a God who is not willing to come for his people. Jesus Christ is that sort of God. Jealous? Yes. Judge at some point? Yes. But willing to come. Willing to die upon a cross. And that is the God that the second commandment says, don't make an idol. Don't worship him as you want. Don't perform plastic surgery. He is wonderful. Worship him. Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.
Uh, Father, no matter uh, whether we are familiar with these truths or new to them in some ways, we pray you would be at work in us so that we understand the folly of turning away from you, the true and living God, and the folly of making an idol. In our own mind, we may think we fashion a better God, but it's an idol. It's not true. It will stop us knowing you. And none are as wonderful as Jesus Christ. Would you help us to see that clearly, we pray in his name. Amen.